0: 1 John chapter 2 this morning, um, we're going to start a new series, and it will run until uh, just after Thanksgiving, and then we're going to do an Advent series. We're going to start a study in the Gospel of Matthew uh, beginning in December. And so uh, that's one of those, if you recall, Matthew begins with the birth story of Christ. So the last thing what I wanted to do was start birth story of Christ in October, and then turn around, and then we hit Christmas season and it just dovetails perfectly. So we finished Nehemiah. Biblically, there was some 400 years of silence after Nehemiah until you got to the arrival of Christ. So I'm not saying the next eight weeks will feel like 400 years. I hope that they don't, but uh, it does give us a little bit of a pause moment. You know, as we finished Nehemiah, one of the things that was so clear was the struggle in the community, that Nehemiah finishes and uh, for all those folks that want to work through Nehemiah and say, oh, what a great text on leadership. And there's lots you can learn about leadership from Nehemiah. I'm certainly not saying that. Um, but primarily, it feels like a failure because you get to the end and all the people rush back to idolatry and intermarriage and all these other issues and problems. And you're left a little bit like saying, what in the world happened? We need something different. And the question that that I think it's worthwhile for us to work with over the next several weeks Um, is what does that look like in our community? What does that look like in the modern-day Christian community, in the church? How is it that we can fight against idolatry? How is it that we can push back against um, everything that goes on around us, the the fish pond, the aquarium that we swim in? Um, C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, if you want to ask someone what water is like, uh, you don't ask a fish. They don't know because that's all they know. They can't define it. You've got to get somebody outside of it to be able to walk through it. And so we live, we swim in this culture. We we swim in the world all the time. How do we recognize it? We've got to step out of it in order to be able to see it with some clarity. In Jerusalem, they're swimming in it. And so they rush back to all these things they're not supposed to be doing. But here we are. We are the bride of Christ. We are the chosen ones. We are those that God has set apart and we have been redeemed and he's rescued us and he's doing a work in us and, and through us and he's changing us. But is there a chance? Are there ways that you and I drift back or we begin to once again fall in love with the culture that we're swimming in all the time? We're commanded throughout the Bible to love a lot of things. Predominantly, we're commanded to love God. It's, it's not an option that way. It's a command. Love the Lord your God. It's a command language. You must do this. To not love God is sin. In all the Bible, 66 books, thousands of years ago, there's one thing we're told not to love. Out of all of the things we're told to love, there's only one thing explicitly says don't love, and it's found in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John 2, if you have your Bibles open, verse 15, the first half of it, says very simply this, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. Now, um, approaching this topic, even me reading that passage for some of you is PTSD. Um, Because you were raised in a church culture that that was like their favorite verse. And it was used as a whipping post. um, And used for many of you, or some of you at least, maybe in some unhelpful ways. I'm not saying it was never helpful, but predominantly you're a little bit like, oh no, um, I'm about to, am I about to hear an eight-week series on all the things I'm not supposed to be doing? And I think that we can approach a passage like that very negatively and, and very clearly, explicitly, it says don't love the world. And we could make the whole focus very negative. Here's the things that all that means, and you better run from all these things, and you better not do all these things, and here are your lists of stuff that's worldly. And if you avoid the worldliness, then... Automatically, you are loving God. But I think there's another way we can approach it, and that's positively. And it's to understand that we have powerful passages like Deuteronomy 6 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All Ten Commandments flow out of that one command, and it's companion to love your neighbor as yourself. You can literally look at all Ten Commandments and say, they either are talking about loving God or loving your neighbor, all of them. To love God, you must love your neighbor. If you're loving your neighbor biblically, rightly, you are already loving God. And so how do we work through it? Well, I think the answer to that question is actually found in the rest of that verse in 1 John 2, when he says, Do not love the world or the things of the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's the reality, and this would even be our main idea this week, and our takeaway is that hearts full of love for God are actually the best protection against loving the world. My argument then this morning, even from John's epistle here, Is the focus, even in this command, when you take it in context, is not primarily trying to make you think negatively, but rather to understand this reality. If you love God, it will shove out of you the love of the world. Uh, We've all famously heard the, the example, don't think of a pink elephant, pink elephant, whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant, Don't think of pink elephants dancing across your screen like some Disney movie. Don't think of going to the zoo and and they've dyed an elephant pink. Whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. And the reality is then we all uh, end up thinking of pink elephants in some way. Even if just the word, how do you not think of a pink elephant? Think of a purple hippo. In other words, set your affections and your mind somewhere else. And the truth of this passage is he's telling you if your heart, the container of your heart, is full of this love of the world, it has it shoved out a love for God. So the reality then is guess what happens? If your heart and your life is full of a love of God, guess what it shoves out of it? The love of the world. And so you don't have to make your focus. Oh no, what is all the worldly things I'm not supposed to love? But instead, you make your focus on your affections set on, Colossians 3, on God and on things above. This topic of worldliness as opposed to loving God has been one of the most difficult for people to grasp. This is not because people are not smart. It's because it really matters. And when something is really important, it takes thoughtfulness and careful consideration to work through it, to understand it, just to prove its importance. It's the one thing in the Bible we're told not to. To love. Now, obviously, by implication, we could say, well, there's flows, all these other things. But in a Bible full of commands about love, full of language about love, full of declarations that God Himself is love, to be told, don't love this one thing is profound. But the truth is, we're also told to delight in certain things in this world, aren't we? Uh, Read Ecclesiastes. Delight in things. Uh, He promises to the Jews, I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. He wants them to delight in it. He tells us even in, in heaven in the future that we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the lamb. It's a meal. It's a feast together with all of the joys of fellowship, companionship, and food. He tells us to delight in it. Jesus, his very first open public miracle, he turns water into wine. It's this delight in the gifts of this world kind of moment. And so there are things in this world we are told to love. We are told to delight in. We are told to embrace various gifts. In response to the complexity of this kind of a passage, people tend to fall and jump into one of two ditches. On the one side would be the ditch of here's all the things you're not supposed to then be loving. Let me define to you the world by giving you lists. And so don't love the entertainment of the world. Here's your list. Don't love the literature of the world. Here's your list. Don't love the art of this world. Here's your list. Don't love certain locations of the world. Here's your list. Don't go here. Don't do this. Don't say this. Don't, don't eat this. Don't drink this. Don't do this on this day. Here's your list. And it has a sense, we're told in Colossians of, of of wisdom to it. We would think that makes sense. But in Colossians, we're even told that that actually has no help at all in helping our flesh. None. That's a stunning statement. It won't help you. On the other side, we have some wonderful resources, and I, and I think these are well-intentioned people trying to fill out, live out 1 John 2. But on the other side, we have uh, even some books that have come out in the last 10 years or so, um, Radical by David Platt or Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. These are great resources. Uh, we have wonderful movements uh, currently moving, pushing forward uh, about how do we understand, how do we genuinely love our neighbors, and uh, we can do it through things like adoption endeavors, uh, meeting the needs of others. We, we've come to understand that the war over the social gospel still exists, but you can actually love Jesus, share the gospel, and care for people. And so the problem, though, is some people then come to a point where they say, well, then it's worldly or it's sinful to have any hobbies, to ever go on vacation, to ever spend money for something, to ever delight in good things that are here. And, and so they take it. I don't think Piper and Platter are making that argument, but folks take it to the extreme then. And, and it's almost like if you're not reading your Bible all day long, if you're not memorizing scripture all day long, if you're not praying all day long, then you must not really love Jesus. And so we have these, these ditches, and, and yet we have this profound truth, and it's left up to us to try to figure out what do we do with that. And so invariably, lists of what's bad or good aren't really helpful. Denying the reality that God has put us in a pla- on a planet that he intends for us to delight in some of its gifts for, our, gifts for us this morning is critical. And so again, we want to understand, begin to understand this process this morning, that hearts full of love for God, when our heart, this heart container, which is really the seat of our emotions, our affections, Right? We know we're not talking about the organ, but our hearts, the, the innermost being of who we are. When our hearts are full of love for God, that is the best protection against loving the world. And so, uh, you, you guys know me well enough to know, jumping right into the middle of a book is really hard. It's painful for me. Um, and it's dangerous for all of us. Right? So, how do we understand this? We don't ever want to take a passage out of context uh, so we want to do some hard work this morning. The renowned preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, once told a story about a guy, he was trying to seek God's will. And he, he just had his Bible closed, and he's praying, and, and he was like, God, just lead me to the right passage. And he, and he let his Bible fall open, and uh, with his eyes still closed in prayers, put his finger down, and the passage he pointed to was this verse, Judas went out and hung himself. And he, that was a stunning passage to read from God. Um, and so he closed his Bible again, prayed again, gave it a second shot, and um, put his finger down and landed on the verse, Go and do thou likewise. <laughs> one last, one last final attempt in his heart, now near tears, praying, God, please direct me. And uh, open his Bible, let his finger fall, looked down, terrified at this point, and landed on the verse, What thou do, do quickly. Um, I was joking with Will Thorson. I think he does a great job of a turn of a phrase at times. And um, one of those is, I can't hear what you're saying because the Bible's screaming so loudly from you ripping that verse out of context. You don't ever want to take a passage out of context. And I will say this. I think the first step to guarding us from those ditches is understanding this passage in what John is doing in 1 John. There's a whole book here that we need to understand. So we need to, we need to bring our minds to the table when we want to understand God's word. We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, with our minds, is what he says. And so we want to do some heavy lifting this morning, um, working through understanding this command, do not love the world or the things of the world. With this dire warning, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so let's walk through it first by just looking at the start of the book, and let's lay out some groundwork of some context that I think will be helpful to us. And let's first of all ask, who's he writing to? Who are the recipients of this first letter of John? Now, uh, our best guess, our our best hope here uh, is that 1 John is written probably about a decade or so after the Gospel of John, uh, which was most likely written in the early 80s AD. So Uh, When we come toward the end of John's life, which is probably A.D. 98 or so, uh, 95 to 98, he's writing this, and he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation in pretty quick succession of one another. Uh, The gospel of John is is broadly evangelistic, and so uh, more so even than the other gospels, and we call those the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John comes up, and he fills in all these gaps that they didn't include. But John has a very distinct purpose, and um, I hope that you remember this, because Darren has shared this with you many, many times as he's been preaching through the Gospel of John, right? That, that he has written, I've written these things that you may know that he is the Christ, right? And that by believing, you might have life in his name, that, that you would understand this is Jesus. So the Gospel of John was written this way, and the Gospel of John is... Um, It's called the spiritual gospel because it has all this symbolism, right? He was the word, and he became flesh. It has those I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the water. Uh, I am the light of the world. And it's all this symbolism. Well, what happened was the Gnostics, the Gnostics were heretics who came along, and they probably read the Gospel of John. And as they read the Gospel of John, they're the ones that argued everything here is evil, and you can overcome evil with your mind. Your your gnosis, your Gnostic, your mindset, your thinking, your knowledge. And so 1 John is written largely to combat these heretical ideas. And so in 1 John chapter 1, he begins to tell us who he's writing to, though. In In his understanding, I'm now writing my letter to these people. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's some fascinating things that he's saying there, and you start to sense his pushback against the Gnostics who wanted to make it all about mind and everything corporal or physical that you can touch was somehow evil or tainted, when he's pointing out, I actually touched Jesus. You can't argue that everything corporal or physical is evil if Jesus was able to be heard and seen, to be leaned upon. He is the beloved disciple who leaned against Jesus, who saw him physically. He's close enough to to see the sweat and the tears and the blood at the crucifixion. He says, I touched him, that which we have handled of the words of life, we are declaring him to you. Who's he declaring it to? He's writing to people, first of all, that are convinced that they're saved. He is writing to people like you. People who come here to church, and whether you're a believer or not, broadly speaking, most people who come to a church think that they're saved. Now, there's lots of people who don't. There's lots of people who say, well, I'm not saved. I'm exploring. I'm learning. I love this place. I love these people. I don't know if I know Jesus. But lots of times, majority of kind of folks, um, is they come to church and they, they at least think they're saved. John is writing to these kinds of people. He's writing to people who who believe that they are saved. The language he uses there, he says he wants to fill up joy. It's a little confusing linguistically. Is he talking about his joy particularly, his joy in declaring this truth, or is he talking about having joy because they're bolstered by the truth? We're not totally sure. Whichever one it is, whether it's his joy of declaring the truth about Jesus to people who already believe in Jesus, or his joy at people who believe in Jesus being encouraged by the belief in Jesus, regardless of the joy uh, component, it's clear the audience is the same. People who think they're saved. That's who he's writing to. People who already have some confidence that they're saved. But secondarily, it's people who may, in fact, be lost, (laughs) Now, that's a harsh reality for people. A lot of times folks struggle with this. And if someone says, I'm saved, or I think I'm saved, lots of people want to just take that as face value and say, oh, well, then they must be saved. Even though Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 7, there will be many at that day who say, Lord, Lord. And they give a whole list of all the things they did. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Depart from me into everlasting darkness. You never did the will of my Father. You weren't obedient The world is full of people who think they're saved that are not. That is very difficult in Bible Belt South. I'm not knocking Bible Belt South. I'm just saying that when you're in an overtly religious culture, people tend to equate having grown up going to church or VBS or whatever as being saved. They think they're a Christian when we would look at them and say, but do you know Jesus? Oh, I know who he is. I believe all these things about him. Is that the same? And so John is writing to people who think they're saved, but some of them may in fact be lost. Now, it's not just Jesus in Matthew 7. Jesus tells us in another parable that the enemy goes through, goes through and sows tares among the wheat. And so Christians are the wheat. Tares look like wheat, but it's a weed. And if you tear it out, um, he says sometimes you get it wrong. So be careful what you tear out, right? He says, I'm going to really reveal it the last day. But the point being that in every religious context, what the enemy desperately wants to do, part of what he's on mission to do is to confuse believers by having lost people in their midst who are acting or saying they're believers but really aren't. It's incredibly dangerous. It can be phenomenally dangerous. And so he's writing to people who believe they're saved, but who may not be. Chapter 2 then, chapter 2 is all about differentiating between those groups. That's what he's doing. So as John is writing this, trying to battle the Gnostics who have all this confusion about the real Jesus and what's what's really bad and what's not bad. Because they're saying things are bad that aren't. And they're saying that things are good that aren't. And as he's combating against this, he's realizing like the church is becoming infiltrated with these people who think they're saved, but they're not. So I better give you some definitions. I better give us some categories to think about your own soul primarily. And that's what he's doing. He's, He's wanting people to process through the truth of the gospel to examine their own soul. Now we can use these then to help us as we engage and encounter other people who claim that they know Jesus. But primarily he's wanting you to ask the questions of your own heart. It's not wrong, it's absolutely right to ask them about other people. But it's primary emphasis is for you to ask about you. Then thirdly, thirdly, so he's writing to people who believe they're saved. He's writing to people where some of them very well are not saved, <laughs> But he's also writing people that are then confused about how sanctification works with salvation. That is a dominant theme throughout the New Testament epistles. Salvation is conversion. It is regeneration. It is repentance and faith. I see who I am. I see what Jesus has done for me. I turn from my sin. I believe what Jesus has done. I put my faith and trust in his work on the cross Burial and resurrection, and I now follow him. That's salvation. Sanctification is now, because I'm saved, I am now living the rest of my life on a journey to be made more like Jesus. Now, here's the harsh reality about that. You could get saved very, very young. We'll say you get saved as a child, and you now spend your whole life, and we'll say you've watched every Netflix special about how to live long, you, you eat the Mediterranean diet, you walk miles every day, you are overtly a happy person, and you live to 100 years old. So from a child to 100, you have been on this journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. And it has been ups and downs, dips and valleys. But arguably, you're more like Jesus at 100 than you were when you got saved as a child. We would hope so, right? Take the person who's grown the most in that journey. And then if you were to zoom out and compare them and ask, are they more like Jesus or more like Hitler? You're more like Hitler. Jesus is that glorious and holy. But Jesus is not mad at you about that. And he's not irritated with you about that. Because your sanctification process, listen to me now, is never about making you acceptable to him. It's all about you leaning into loving him more and experiencing his love for you on a daily basis that just enraptures your heart and draws you to him. That is why he's not irritated or annoyed with your failures, your weaknesses, your brokenness. He is drawing you to himself. Like a parent who gets thrilled when that baby takes the first two steps and doesn't yell at it. Isn't annoyed. Like that wife with a husband who's had a traumatic brain injury and he's just learning to walk, they rejoice over the smallest little progress. And the delight and the relational connection that you are now his child is profoundly more important to him. Even, even as he's making you holier. And that is kind. And it is wonderful. But people don't understand the relationship between sanctification and salvation. In 1 John 2, verse 1, you can see it this way. My children, my little children, uh, John John was an affectionate guy. John helps me out because I like to think uh, Paul's my hero, but I feel a little bit more like John because he's an emotional dude. Uh, (laughs) My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Sanctification. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he then goes on to remind you of your position in him. And so he's writing to people who think they're saved. He's writing to people who think that some people who think they're saved but they're not. And he's writing to people who are saved and are confused about sanctification. That is the context. He wanted to ensure that these believers understood that salvation is not perfection but an ongoing lifestyle of turning from sin to Christ. We'll come up on Reformation Sunday here in just a few weeks, the last Sunday in October. Very famously, Martin Luther's very first of his 95 theses that he nailed at the church door in Wittenberg was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. First John then is not about being perfect, it's about growing in Christ for those that actually know Christ. You can actually go then, uh, second main point, it'd be up on the Prezi if it was there, but it's not, is what is the purpose then? Why then ultimately he's writing? That's who he's writing to. What's the purpose? Go over to 1 John chapter 5. John loves to wait till the end of his books and his writings to tell you why he's writing. Uh, the purpose of the gospel, of John, doesn't show up till John 20. 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 what's he say I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god that you may know that you have eternal life he wants to offer assurances to those that are saved john is laying out a means for them to wrap their minds around the truthfulness of the physical appearance of christ and the effect of the gospel in their lives this work is not primarily about their growth sanctification but about their position Salvation. You can think of it theologically as justification and regeneration. It's about who they are in Christ, not as much about who they are becoming in Christ. Now, sanctification is part of the proof of salvation, though. And this is where it starts to dovetail in. This is, frankly, the truth of the whole Bible, right? Like, you can't miss this in the Bible. It's most explicitly in the New Testament, though. Christ tells the crowds that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, they can't get into heaven. How in the world is that possible? These are the guys that like they tithe mint and cumin, the smallest of uh, of the spices. These are the guys that give every every t- consistently. These are the guys who pray publicly. These are the guys who avoid all the sinners. These are the guys who stand apart. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds this, and he's telling you that moment, it's not about your deeds. It's about your identity. It's about who are you in Christ? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot get into heaven. What is the righteousness that God is looking for? It is the presence and the power of Jesus Christ applied to your soul. And in this, if Jesus is in you, salvation, there is every expectation that he's going to come out of you, sanctification. Um, my dad, when we were talking about cars, spent time with cars, um, there's all kinds of different kinds of hot rods. And one, one of my favorite kinds of hot rods is a sleeper. Uh, a sleeper is a car that looks normal, and you would never expect it to be a hot rod, but somebody slammed some massive engine into it. And so it would, if it pulls up next to you and it were to, were to speed down the road, it would shock you. Um, I didn't even point this out to my wife, but we were driving to, because she, she she doesn't never express this annoyance to me other than keep your eyes on the road, so I, but I don't always point out every car that I see on the road that's cool. Um, On our way to Louisville a few weeks ago, we were driving, and I was coming up behind this older Chevy Malibu, not a cool one, Uh, four doors, uh, tan, had some rough spots on it, but as we were coming up behind it, I was in the left lane, it was in the right lane, I noticed its rear tires. Uh, because I'm a car guy, and its rear tires were really wide, really wide, abnormally wide. It wasn't wasn't completely set up for a dragster, but those tires, uh, they they had to be this wide. And so I knew immediately this is a sleeper, because the guy put a different rear end into it to fit these tires. And as we came up closer to it, I noticed an exhaust pipe sticking out through the driver's wheel well. And I'm like, (laughs) ha, 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 ha. This guy's driving this old Chevy, nasty rust bucket, and he's probably got a 454 in this thing. And you could hear it as I went by it. And the guy sitting in the, like, he had the look, right? He had the flat brim hat pulled low, the sunglasses. He was kind of riding low. The car sat low, had his arm up on the dash, the sleeve tat. I'm like, that's a hot rodder. Like, I just so want to go talk to this guy right now. It's a sleeper car. Like, and the reality is, to someone that knows you can't hide it. You can try to hide it, but you can't hide it. A little bit further down the road at one point, I noticed he wanted to get around a truck, and man, when he hit the gas, that whole thing squatted down, and it was gone. Like, my man. You stick a 454 that's probably bored out in that bad boy with open pipes, you can't hide it. You can't put Jesus in a broken clay pot, and the glorious treasure not shine out. It's going to come out of you. So when you have people saying, I know Jesus, but you don't actually see Jesus coming out of them, they don't know him. They have a phrase, how can you tell a crack addict is lying? their lips are moving. How can you tell a religious hypocrite is lying about their salvation? By their fruits, you shall know them. It comes out of them, eventually. It just does. And so you can't deal with issues of justification without it starting to impact at some point your sanctification. Charlie the orphan hippo. It's like the cutest thing in the world on the web. It like went viral last year. He was this orphan hippo, and they rescued Charlie the little hippo, and and they didn't have any place else to put Charlie the hippo, so they put him at a rhino orphanage. Well, what happens when you take a baby hippo and have him raised by rhinos is he thinks he's a rhino. And so little Charlie the orphan hippo, this is bad because rhinos don't hang out in the water. But hippos do because their skin is incredibly sensitive. So like several times a day Charlie's caretakers were having to go in and slather suntan lotion on Charlie's body. How would you like, is that the job you want? (laughs) It's my job. Like I used to have toddlers. I mean putting lotion on a toddler is like wrestling a feral cat. Like so I can't imagine trying to suntan lotion a hippo. Right? And and. And and so they got Charlie the hippo being raised by rhinos who thinks he's a rhino. And so eventually you're like, if Charlie's going to figure out who he is, he's going to have to spend time with some other hippos. And so eventually they had to introduce him to other hippos so he could hang out in the water and be safe. Our behaviors, our actions reflect our deepest belief systems. They did a study years ago with men. Uh, and women, and what they did is they had a group of men, and they had them speak to a woman over the phone. And it was not about a romantic thing; it would be some kind of business transaction or something. But half the men, they told them, "Oh, just so you know, this lady you're talking to on the phone, whom they're never going to see, is just gorgeous. Like she's like a model." And they're like, "Oh." They told the other half of the guys, "Hey, the lady you're going to talk to, um, she's just not that. She's not that attractive." And then they let the phone calls happen, and then they measured heart rates, mind things, all this kind of stuff. They weren't testing the men. They were testing the women. The women had no idea what the men had been told. But the women who spoke to the men who thought they were beautiful, over the course of the conversation, became more confident, congenial, helpful, laughing. Laughing. They didn't even know. The guys weren't even flirting with them. Just the nature of the way the man interacted with them because of his belief system began to influence their belief system. The things we do are reflective of at least who we believe we are. Now this is critically important because this is the moment our culture's at. So our culture looks at it and then says this. Well, then who I believe I am defines who I am. So I can believe I'm a cat. I can believe that I'm of an ethnicity I'm not. I can believe I'm X, Y, or Z, and that is then who I am, and my actions go beyond that. Here's where we differ as Christians. We say, no, you are who God made you to be. And what you should be on mission to do is to develop a belief system that's reflective of your created reality. That was actually part of our study this whole last summer. The most important thing about who you are is are you in Christ or not? And so if you are in Christ, that is your reality of your identity. But as we mature in our understanding of that reality, we will grow in our belief systems and our actions, and the Bible bears that out. Sanctification is like that. Positionally, if you're saved, Jesus will come out of you, but guess what? As you grow and mature in understanding that, more and more Jesus will come out of you. Does that make sense? That's the way this works. In John... Whether John would have used that kind of language or not, that's the reality, the theological, and and if I can put it this way, the anthropological, the reality of our humanity, that's what anthropology is, this is who we are. And so theologically, if you're saved, Jesus is going to come out of you, and the more you grow in understanding your identity in Jesus, the more Jesus will come out of you. But if you don't know him, he's never going to come out of you. Everything else is just faking it. And if there's anything you can't fake it till you make it, it's salvation. You just can't. Either you are or you're not. And so then that question is, if I am or I'm not, how can I maybe process through and understand that? That's chapter 2. And so now we know the recipients of the book. Now we know why he wrote the book. We can now start zeroing in even more to the context of our specific verse this morning. And so what chapter 2 does is it gives us three tests of salvation. Three. Primarily intended for you and I to filter, to take these tests and pour our heart through them and see where it drops out. Right? it's, it's like one of those machines you drop a ball down, it pings back and forth, and oh, comes out this slot, comes out this slot. Uh, when I was a kid, or when, even when I worked at Chuck E. Cheese, we had a change counting machine. I'd empty the bucket out of those arcade video games, and I would dump it in this, and it had different size slots. And so uh, nickels would go here, ping, dimes, quarters, and the tokens were a little bit different size. And so it, it filters them all through and then what fell out at the end were actual quarters. We could roll and take to the bank. These three tests work that way. You pour your heart, your soul, your life through it, and you've got to do it genuinely. It's like, <laughs> this does you no good for you to be like, oh, well, no one else knows this about me, but I actually am this. That's, it's okay, whatever. That's not helping anybody, least of all you and your own soul. And as you pour it through, it's like, ding, 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 and you're like, oh, okay. And it's intended in large part that way. The first test, the first test, you should write these down if you take notes. The first test is a test of obedience. It's in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, um, some of you, you heard that word abide, and you're like, I feel like I know that word. John 15 is what you're thinking of, where he says, abide in me, and I abide in you. John's writings are so tightly connected. This is a test of obedience. He's saying, if you are saved, you obey Jesus. And you might ask, well, which commandments? There's so many commands in the Bible. Well, what did he say was the greatest commandment? And the second is like it. Love God, love your neighbor. You just start there. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to say, well, what about all the other commandments? What does this mean? What does that mean? Let's just start there. Love God, love your neighbor. It's a test of Do you obey God? This is actually what goes back to when Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 makes that statement to those that say, Lord, Lord, and they list all these things that they have supposedly done, ministry work that they have done. And Jesus says, but you have not obeyed the Father. People who are saved will obey Jesus. But what does that look like? Very simply, it will look like this. As you engage with the word, or as you hear the word, preached or as you hear the word taught or as you do the word in small groups or as you do the word in conversations with other christians and as god's word is brought to bear on your life in some particular area and you begin to realize man i'm not actually doing what god wants me to do there then you will begin a process of growing to start doing what it is you ain't doing That's what it looks like. Does it look like perfection? No, remember we already covered that ground. Did Jesus obey the will of the Father? I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. It's obedience. How far does that obedience go? Well, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus obeyed to the point of the cross, even to the death. And so it's obedient. Do you obey God? That's what he's saying. The second is a test of love. I'm just going to skip down. Verses 9 through 11 is where this starts to show up. He says this, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for Stumbling. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, because it's just beautiful the way the word is framed and flows together, what does, G, what does John call Jesus all the way at the beginning of his gospel? The world is dark, and what comes into the world? The light of the world. To be in darkness is to be in sin and darkness here is equated with this a failure to love your brother now if in your mind and your heart you ask this question who's my brother great question think of rich young ruler who's my neighbor in other words when we are saved god begins this transformative work in us where we love him and we love others we begin doing the very thing he's commanded us to do because Jesus is in us. It's a test of love. People who do not love others don't know Jesus. You can't love Jesus and hate your brother. You cannot. Do I obey him? Which the very greatest commandment is love God. Do I love others? The third is a test. And I don't know any other way. I've tried over the years to find better ways to frame this, but I can't come up with a better way. Doctrinal persistence. And I know as soon as I say that, you, you agree with me. There must be a better, succinct way to say it. But that's what I got. Like If you come up with something this week, pass it on, and I'll use it. Happy to do it. But basically what it means is you keep on believing. Right? Like, like we, we have famous sermons, keep on keeping on. This is keep on believing. Um, Journey's song, don't stop believing. Uh, most of you don't know this, but the front man, lead singer for Journey, actually had become a Christian before he wrote that song. Um, don't stop believing. But it was this concept of persistence in belief. And we see it at the end, down in verses 19 through 25. And he talks about people who went out from them. In other words, who stopped believing. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now woven all through that, and I don't have time this morning, is John is literally unraveling, untying, carving apart the Gnostic mindset. That's why you have all this language of the father, the son, the son, the father, the relationship, rejection of one. Because part of what the Gnostics wanted to throw out was this concept of God the father and God the son. Because that's a very earthly, corporal, physical way of thinking. And so John is saying you can't have one without the other. If you stop believing the essential truths about the identity of Jesus There's no way that you're saved. I had someone years ago, they asked me this question. They said, it's always been hard for me because they'd grown up in a youth group. There was a young man. He was, this is very dated, but he was one of those preacher boys. Everybody knew he was going to be a minister. Everybody, this guy gave devotionals in the youth group setting. Uh, He was being invested in significantly. He grew up, went to Bible college. Graduated Bible college, got married, and was working in some context, uh, but always serving in the church and teaching Sunday school, this kind of thing. His first wife passed away. He remarried, and the woman he married was a Mormon. He then abandoned the faith for Mormonism. Mormonism, which denies who Jesus is, that he is God. Mormonism is not a form of Christianity. It is a satanic false religion. And this gentleman said, I've always struggled because I knew him. And now he's abandoned the faith for Mormonism. And he said, are you saying to me he was never saved? And I opened my Bible and I read this passage with him. I said, I'm not, John is. And yes, I'm going to go with John. That's painful, isn't it? We don't always get it right. The apostles didn't get it right all the time. By the time Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians, he's convinced that guy that's having this affair with his stepmother isn't a believer diatrophies, they all thought he was a believer. They baptized him. By the time you get further in the epistles, they discipline because he's not a believer. We can all get duped. Sometimes there's tears among the wheat, and sometimes it's revealed by the brokenness of their belief system. And we've got to have the courage and the integrity to own what the Bible says about them. More importantly, and more pointedly, You have to own what it says about you. And so we have these tests. Now, right on the heels of the first two tests, this test of command, do you obey commandments? Are you obedient? And this test of do you love? Right on the heels of those two tests, obedience and love, and before we arrive at this third test, of doctrinal persistence, we find what we would call a parenthetical statement. Uh, I interrupt my flow of thought for the rabbit trail. That's, that's what that is. But they don't rabbit trail. Uh, this is the Holy Spirit writing. So uh, preachers, teachers, we rabbit trail because we lose the place in our notes or something occurs to us, I gotta make this point. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But when the gospel writers, the epistle writers, when the Holy Spirit through the apostles writes, and there's a parenthetical statement, he's saying, I better add this truth in here too. And here's the perfect, and this, right in between these, first test commandment, obedience, second test love, right in between those, we get this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You can already sense in there a little bit of a summation of the first two. We have abiding, we have doing the will of God, obedience. We also have lots here about love. Why now? Why insert this right now? Because the first two tests can seem, listen to me now, very subjective. Very subjective. Certainly all of us struggle in those areas of love and obedience. If John does not provide us some encouragement here, and a reminder that salvation is positional in Jesus, And your sanctification doesn't earn you salvation. There are some that as they start rightly filtering their heart through these tests of love and obedience, that it could just produce this terror in them. Am I really saved? I don't love as I should. I don't obey as I should because no one in this room loves as we should and no one in this room obeys as they should. And John understands that that could be confusing and discouraging to some. Matthew 16, 25 through 26, dovetails so great with this because he's reminding us of the very core of our salvation. And Matthew says it this way, whoever will save his life shall lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, salvation is I've chucked it all for the sake of Jesus. Whether you believe it or not, you sang that this morning. What did you say? Give me Jesus. That's what salvation is. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Matthew 10, 38 and 39 says it this way. He who takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. The reality is that the call to our salvation, the justification moment of dying to our lives in this world in order to find eternal life in Christ is carrying our cross into our sanctification and continuing and progressively turning our back on the world. The cross is a method of death. So then, if John is going to jump in here with this parenthetical and remind us of the positional truth of our salvation, why does he use the world as his, and it's a literary device we call a foil, right? A foil is an enemy, an opponent, to reveal your skill. So when God wanted to reveal his power, let's just just rehearse a few of these from the Bible. When he wants to show that I can win any battle... He uses a nine-foot-tall behemoth that terrifies everybody and a teenage boy with a sling to destroy him. When he wants to show his power, he uses a bunch of prophets dancing around, whipping themselves, bleeding, screaming out to Baal, and he lets fire drop from the sky on a soaked, with water dripping off of its sacrifice, that goes wham, and it's gone in an instant. When he wants to show his power to deliver his people his way, he brings the Red Sea apart on dry land and then destroys the largest standing army of their day in a moment. I'm in control, you're not. When he wants to show that they'll be able to defeat anyone, he uses a walled city with just an impenetrable fortress so significant they mock the people as they march around. They blow some trumpets and all of a sudden all the walls came tumbling down. When he wants to show his power, he has Jesus walk into a situation where the little girl is dead and he says she's just sleeping. Or he walks into a graveyard and says roll the stone away and unbind that man because he said Lazarus come forth. When God wants to show his power, he uses an opponent in an enemy to demonstrate his glory and when he wants to show the radical transformation that happens in every believer's life and of how you love and obey differently there's no better opponent for him to give than affection for the world why first of all because the world is so contrary to the father All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is contrary to the Father. Now, clearly, this is not the physical world. God made the physical world. Clearly, this is not even the people in the world, since he boldly declares in John 3 his love for all of them. That should begin to give hints to us he's not talking here about physical and people. He uses the world because loving the world is anti-love. In verse 15, if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. So the love being expressed here is some kind of anti-God sort of love. In other words then, whatever the world is that he's talking about here is somehow opposed to God. It is anti-God, It's contrary to the very nature of the Father. And thirdly, it's temporal instead of eternal. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's another clue to what he's actually going to mean by the world. Because it's a fleeting thing. To invest your affections in something transient is like putting your money in a non-interest-bearing account. It's like the guy who's given the talent... And he claims that the master is so harsh so he buries it instead of just even putting it somewhere to gain interest. To love the world is to love something, some things that are never going to actually benefit. It's not going to last. While this text is a command, don't love the world, in the context, it's actually also the truth about everyone that's a Christian. You already don't love the world. Because you can't be saved and love the world. John is saying true believers don't love the world. And, and, and their sanctification are loving the world less and less all the time. And if you're not, then you're not saved. He is not creating a third category. Lost, saved, saved, saved but love the world. He's not. We can say it even more bluntly this way, if you don't love Christ, you love the world. If you love the world, then you don't love Christ. Hearts full of love for God are the best protection against loving the world. Now, if you're like, man, I feel like it's time for the sermon to be done, and yet I feel like I need so much more help than to understand the world, then now you know why it's a series. And so I want to encourage your hearts this way. I want you to think back to your salvation. And it it may be that you can remember a moment of conversion, or it may be even that you just recognize God's work in your life, and you can't pick a day, but you can tell you know and follow Jesus. And when Jesus tells that story, uh, one of the two stories that Darren read this morning, that it's about this utterly destitute man who's a day laborer out in a field. He doesn't even own his own farm. He just works every day to be able to feed himself, his wife, and his kids. Everything you own when you're in that situation is of immense value to you. Have you ever seen a homeless person with the grocery cart and all their belongings on it? I mean, this is their world, right? And so this guy, anything you own, it's sustenance-based living. Every pot you own, you have to have that pot. Every cooking utensil, you have to have that just to survive. You have one set of clothes. That's who this man is, and he comes this moment where he sees the immense value of a treasure in the field. And he knows if I can buy that field, this treasure, this treasure is so, exceed, so far above anything else I could ever have. or own. And, the, and so the, Jesus tells the story. He goes back to wherever he lives, whatever little hovel he lives in, and he sells everything. All of it. There are things in your home right now that you'd be happy to put for sale. But there are things in your home you don't want to sell they have sentimental value to you. They're attached to a memory for you. It could be wedding rings. It could be a special dress. It could be an outfit. It could be a quilt handed down from your grandmother, specially made for you. It could be tools given to you from your father. It It could be a craft your child or grandchild or neighbor child made for you. It could be your wedding certificate. It could be a graduation diploma. There are things in your life you really wouldn't want to sell. And you'd be like, well, maybe I can just carry those with me. The classic question, if your house is on fire, what's the first thing you'd grab? And he sells all of it. All of it. The things you don't care about and the things you need and the things you desperately want to keep. He sells all of it to get that treasure because the treasure is so valuable. And here is the kicker. Here's the kicker. Jesus said he sold it with joy. Not begrudging. Not sorrow. I can't believe I have to let this go also. I can't. Oh, man, this this one's painful. Ah, oh, Here you go. I have tools that my dad etched his name in, and it matches his signature. They are invaluable to me. I will never sell them. Why or how could I sell them with joy? Not just begrudgingly, but joy, because the treasure is so much. When you came to Jesus, you said you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. And I want you to know something. You got the greatest treasure ever. And when our hearts... When our hearts are full, are just smashed full, crammed full of the love of God, guess what? You're not going to need lists, whatever the world, is. would I not do that? Where can I not go? Because your heart is so passionately consumed with the love of God because of the treasure that He's given you that you can't help but love Him more. Hearts that are full of the love of God is the greatest protection against any love of the world. Oh, believer, oh, saint, hear me. You have a treasure. Reflect on, rejoice in, celebrate the treasure that you have in Jesus.